Welcome to the Eating Your Cake 2 podcast. I'm your host, Claire Sieber, global career and leadership coach, facilitator, speaker, and founder of Eating Your Cake 2, a business focused on helping you take control of your career and leadership success. Right here on this podcast, you'll learn how to amplify your influence, accelerate your career growth, create real presence, and have a true impact by learning the tools and strategies that you need to show up with more courage, more confidence, and more clarity. Are you ready? Let's do it. Meet Shil Shangavi. Shil is a public speaking specialist, storyteller, and a highly regarded speaker coach. He is redefining the meaning of public speaking by demonstrating its value across all forms of communication and has presented across most industries around the world online and in person. Phil is the head of speaker coaching for TEDx Perth, a board member for Gorilla Establishment and a presentation mentor with Impact 100 WA. He is a pioneer in his field, having introduced the concept of public speaking in virtual reality and artificial intelligence, two groundbreaking approaches which are disrupting the speaking game. I am beyond pumped to have Shil on the Eating Your Cake 2 podcast today. Let's dive on in. Alrighty, here we are, Shil Shangavi. Welcome to the Eating Your Cake 2 podcast. I am super duper pumped to have you on board with me today because as we've both just acknowledged, we do do a little bit of light stalking. I think you used the word watching, light watching, mutual appreciation society of each other in the background. So it's really exciting to have you here today and have a real, raw, honest conversation. Welcome. Hello. I think the word stalking with our social platforms should be accepted because that's what a lot of us do on our social platforms. We stalk each other, right? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yet it still seems to be a word that people get awkward about, right? I understand why we get awkward because stalking is creepy. However, that's what we do on social media. We stalk (laughs) each other. So we've acknowledged we've done a little bit of light level stalking. I know, I certainly know I've been watching your watching <laughs> your <laughs> journey for some time. And we have also had the opportunity to come together a couple of times. You've been an awesome support with our Future Female Leaders program. And so today I'm thrilled to have you here to share with some of our listeners a little bit more around your own journey with public speaking and how you got there and the things you've learned along the way. You know me, you know, I like to talk, cut the crap, talk real talk, where words are allowed here and whatever in between. But for anyone who doesn't know you or perhaps hasn't come across your profile before, do you want to tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do and what a day in your life is like? That's a broad question with many different (laughs) angles to it. So let's start with who I am. My name is Shil. Hello. I was born in Kenya, in Africa. I'm from a little island off the coast of Kenya called Mombasa. And to get to the mainland of Kenya, we need to cross a bridge every day. So that's how isolated my island is. I still consider that my home. I was brought up speaking French, English, Gujarati, and Swahili. I can still speak 
in English. I speak 80% Swahili and 50% Gujarati. My French is gone aside from swear words, which I find entertaining. <laughs> I was brought up in a large property in Africa surrounded by wildlife. So ever since I was young, I've loved animals and the natural ecosystem. I'm a football fan, the real football, soccer. Oh. <laughs> I'm a Manchester United supporter. I'm a climate enthusiast, and I am also a sneaker collector. I love shoes. I love sneakers, and I have a shoe fetish, if that's appropriate to say. Yes, so it's that's, allowed. A foot, as long as it's a shoe fetish and not a feet fetish. No, fine. not a foot fetish. It's a <laughs> shoe fetish. There's a difference between the two. <laughs> that's an insight into the person I am. I also train regularly. I go to the gyms six days a week and gym and training and the meditation is a huge part of my life, which we can talk into as we progress. My journey, when I was 10 years old, my parents, they noticed there was a speech disorder, which I was developing. Now, at the time, they didn't think anything of it. They thought it was part of growing up and being a child and that eventually it would go away. Didn't, it became worse. And what they realized is that I have a severe stuttering challenge. And that continued from school, from primary school through to secondary school, through to university, through to my professional career. And I've had a debilitating severe stutter since I was 10, which sucks because it's held me back. It's broken my confidence. It's made me anxious, embarrassed, and ashamed of the person I am until one day I decided that I wanted to take control of it. So I taught myself a number of sophisticated strategies to control it. I use those strategies now in this conversation. And as a result of the strategies that I taught myself today, I'm a professional speaker. I'm a professional MC, host, and conversationalist. And public speaking is my full-time career. That's a snapshot of my journey over the last 40 years. It's an incredible story. Lots of things that I didn't know about you in there as well. So thank you for sharing. And your public speaking journey has been, going back to watching you, has been one that has just gone from strength to strength, certainly from my lens. And, you know, we were talking just before we hit record around the great opportunities that are coming your way at the moment, you know, all over the world, which is so fantastic to hear. But I'd love to hear from you around, you know, when you made the decision that I'm going to get into public speaking, this is what I, what I want to do and this is what I'm going to do. What are, you know, what was it like for you when you were starting out and what were some of the barriers that you faced? Let's start with what was it like starting out? Mm. Like anybody who leaves their job to pursue their own career, it's frightening. It's daunting. It's frightening. However, you balance it out with a combination of adrenaline, excitement, determination. So it was balancing all these emotions around a vision that I had clearly framed in my mind, which I knew I, I could do because I backed myself to do it. What stood out when I made the decision was everybody I told 
in my close group. And by that, I mean my parents, my sister, my wife, my best friends. They all said they supported me. However, I could see doubt in their eyes. I could hear uncertainty in the way they spoke to me. And I sensed skepticism in the way they supported me. And I, I understood why, because I have no experience as a professional speaker and I stutter. And so that was a driver for me because I sensed the apprehension from everybody. I backed myself, not with the intention to prove everyone wrong. I did it to prove myself right. And I felt that was a stronger way to approach the vision than I want to prove them wrong. Instead, I wanted to prove myself right. So that's how I felt when I made the jump to pursuing this. What are the challenges I had? Many. However, three which stand out are, one, building my credibility. To become a speaker, you need to be known as a speaker, and that's tough. Two, getting speaking opportunities. I approached hundreds of people, and most said no. So breaking into a circle where people would engage me to speak was tough. And three, backing myself. So whenever I got the opportunity to be in front of an audience, I was terrified. My hands would shake. I would get dry mouth, cracked lips. And the terror was driven through the knowledge that at any point I could have a brain spasm and I'd start stuttering badly and it would sound awkward. And because it's something I've always felt embarrassed about, I was afraid to show that in front of an audience. And that was a constant challenge in my mind. And the question I asked is, how are people ever going to accept me as a professional speaker if they know I stutter? And it turns out showing that stutter has been a strength in becoming a speaker. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, I can't imagine the, well, I can't imagine we've all, we all do mindset work, but there is a huge amount of mindset work that you needed to do in order to reframe the challenges that you were having with stuttering from something that, as you expressed, you know, perhaps there was some cynicism or some concerns from those close to you around how is he going to achieve this requires a huge amount of mindset work on your part to reframe that into actually this is a superpower. And this is something that I can use for me instead of something working against me. How did you go about that? By reframing it as something mm -hmm. elite. I reframed it to convincing myself that what I have is elite. And the reframe was born from something I learned. And what I learned is that 1% of the adult population has a stutter. And when I learned that, it changed my thinking. What I told myself is if we live in the 1% of any category, we are elite. And we belong in a world-class category. And so I convinced myself that I'm in a 1%, which means I think differently, I function differently, my mind operates in ways that 99% of people would never have to think about. And because I told myself constantly that 
I'm elite and I've taught myself elite speaking strategies, that gave me the confidence to step in front of an audience with the knowledge that mm. I'm going to program my mind to deliver content in a way that nobody has ever had to think about. And that makes me different. Mm. And that's what I tell myself every day, even for this conversation Anytime I feel the butterflies, I remind myself that you are doing things which possibly nobody else in the world, including people who stutter, have learned. And mm -hmm. I say that because I've tried to teach people who have stutters and they're yeah. unable to learn the techniques that I apply. I love everything that you're saying. And I love as well how much you still talk about the fact that even now as a world-class professional speaker that you still get nervous and that you still get the butterflies and I just think that's so powerful because it's what makes us human and, I, and my, my view is that that's how we know that we care about something but for people that might be listening in who have a serious fear of public speaking whether it's you know standing up at a board meeting in front of 10 people or standing up in front of a hundred like what guidance do you have for them around where to start? Where do they start to tackle that fear? I think I even read somewhere that a fear of public speaking is higher than death for a lot of people. Let's put that to the test, okay? So to anybody who's listening, mm -hmm. ask ourselves a question. If somebody gave us a choice, I'd like you to present to 20 people or I'd like you to die. Which one would we pick? I mean, I hope that people will pick the speaking to 20 people. I really hope. <laughs> <laughs> one of the reasons this saying has caught fire is because of what Jerry Seinfeld said. In one of his stand-up routines, he did a, a segment around how when you're at a funeral, people would rather be in the coffin than delivering the eulogy and it's mm. spread from there. There's no way to test it. However, I understand the thought process behind it because there's a primal fear in our minds that we will make a mistake. We will embarrass ourselves. We will stuff up and what mm. then? What's going to happen to us? So there's no way to test the theory. And I would hope that for anybody who has the choice, we would choose presenting to people. However, on that note, the term that's been coined is we want to get over the fear of public speaking. Would you agree with that? That's a common. Yes, term. definitely. The fear doesn't go. The nerves don't go. So I am encouraging everybody to reframe that to not overcoming it, however, to managing it. Because when we manage it, we embrace it. We walk into it. We accept it. We let it do its thing, allow the fear into us because it doesn't go. And I speak around the world. I get anxious going to networking events. I feel butterflies on podcasts. I feel it when I'm presenting to five people. I feel it when I'm presenting to 500 people. I feel it when I go to Toast in East Perth and have a coffee catch up with somebody who wants to understand what I do. So we feel it anywhere because speaking is us communicating with another person so the moment we speak 
the moment words escape our mouth, we expose ourselves to judgment, to ego, to credibility, to questions. However, that's amplified when there's more people. And that's amplified even more when we stand up. Because when we stand up, there's a, a beautiful quote by somebody called George Jessel. And he said, the human brain starts to work the moment we are born and stops working the moment we stand up to speak in public. <laughs> and it's true. <laughs> the moment we stand up, we feel fear. So one way to manage it is to sit. Mm. There is nothing in the rule book to say we have to stand when we present. Standing is a brilliant way to project authority and confidence. However, when we sit, it calms us, it calms the room, and it feels more conversational than presentational. Yeah, I think that's a great insight, especially in meetings and things like that, which definitely opportunities where we don't need to stand up every time we need to speak. Even on stage, I have been mm. on stage in front of hundreds of people and asked for a stool and I've sat yeah. on stage. And I remember there was a conference where I was one of five speakers and I was the only one who sat. I was the only one who got a stool, who sat down. And for my first 10 minutes, I sat and spoke. And most of the room, if I was to put a percentage on it, 90% of the room said it calmed them. It made yeah. them feel more at ease with me than standing up and speaking. Of course, I then stood up afterwards. However, to start with, I sat because I was fucking nervous. So I <laughs> yeah, I can see how people would feel that way as well because there'd also be this feeling of like you're talking with me perhaps as opposed to at me. And I think that that would make quite a difference to the way you're received. Well, when we sit, we're as one. Mm. We're not standing up and presenting. When we sit, we're equal with everybody. It creates a more comfortable environment. When it creates a comfortable mm. environment, it creates a more empathetic space. And through comfort and empathy, we build trust. Yeah. Absolutely. What do you think about, because one of the things that I have identified in myself over the years in terms of observe the fear comes up more than others is often to do with my perception perhaps of the people in the room. And so what I mean by that as an example is I definitely have observed I feel more nervous or more uncomfortable if I am presenting to a group of senior execs or a board, perhaps, than what I am if I am presenting to a group of fresh graduates. And as much as I will rationalise with myself and say, you know, we all bleed the same blood, we're all human beings, we should all be treated the same, et cetera, et cetera, and I believe those things, I notice my body, though, and its response is still different in terms of heart rate and sweaty palms and, you know, all of those things that come with nerves. Is that something you've heard from others before or you've experienced? Yeah, I experience it, others experience it. And the reason I've learned we experience that is because we place importance on the roles and titles people have. So when we're presenting to a group of CEOs, CFOs, high-level executives, mm. we feel that they're smarter, they're more accomplished, that mm. they're more intelligent, and that they're in the boss role as opposed mm. to 
with due respect to graduates and to the younger generation, whereas it's the grads and the younger generation that we should be more worried about because <laughs> they've grown up in a different time to mm. us. They are more savvy. They are more distracted. They have more going on in their minds. They have more weight on our social media platform. So if we have a 20-year-old who watches us present and that 20-year-old is an influencer and they write a comment about how shit that presentation was, that can spread like wildfire. Mm. Whereas a senior person in the room would do something like that, or rather we assume they wouldn't do something like that. So we put importance on the roles and titles that people have. And what I've learned is that with a senior audience, the more at ease and at peace we are with ourselves, the more respect we get from them. Absolutely. Easier said than done. That's exactly what I was about to say. You know, where do you, you know, what guidance perhaps do you have for people on where to start with that? Start with finding peace in ourselves or start with public speaking? Which one? First, finding, you know, getting comfortable in ourselves so that we can get better at managing our nerves as they come up with public speaking. There isn't a short-term answer or solution to getting comfortable with ourselves. That takes time. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of effort and self-work, you would yeah. know this, to be yeah. at peace with the person we are. And that comes with time and experience. So I wouldn't feel comfortable in saying, do this one thing and you'll feel better with yourself. However, one strategy which I speak about from stage is to find our elite. Mm. So for example, if we are a person who is introverted, then introverts are more quiet. They think more. And because they think more, they're always three steps ahead in terms of their planning and in terms of their thought process. That is their elite. If we are a person who has high levels of anxiety, well, it turns out people who are more anxious are more aware. Mm. And there's a study which links to, and I'm not comparing us to chimpanzees, so stay with me here. <laughs> there's a study which was done on a family of chimps. And there was a group of chimps within the family who were more anxious. And because of that, they were discarded from the family and they were set to sit on the perimeter. Weeks after that happened, when the researchers went back to study the group, the entire family was dead. And the reason it happened is because these anxious chimps were set on the perimeter mm -hmm. and discarded, the awareness of their surroundings was lost, which means they were attacked more easily by predators. Yeah. So anxious people have a heightened awareness of mm -hmm. their environment and they're known to project more empathy and that becomes our elite mm. so whatever our challenges are find what the elite in the challenge is and develop that and feel comfortable with that mm. I love that advice I think that's great guidance and it's funny I often get questions I mean yeah as you know I do a lot of work in the self-awareness space with people in coaching etc and I yeah. often get the question in workshops or whatever it might be like you know when is the whole like self-awareness thing like done like at what point am I like done and my response is pretty much always the same when you're six feet under we always have more to learn and my personal opinion is the day that we think we don't that in itself is the issue 
So what I love that you're saying and what I'm hearing from you is it's around like how do we just continue to be curious about who we are and what makes us us and then take those unique parts and turn them into something that is elite and leverage that superpower and utilize it in the best way we can. And we are the most complex being that we know of, Mm. that we know of. Not all of us are. Some of us are not as complex. We're not as articulately developed. Let's not go down that path though. (laughs) We We are from all creatures we know of. We are the most sophisticated and complex in how we use our brains. And we're so aware of everything and everyone around us that we learn constantly about emotional intelligence, public Mm -hmm. speaking, being aware of others, empathy, anxiety. These are all skills which we're constantly understanding. And there's research around them every day, which changes how we think. So it's a never-ending exercise in understanding how we Mm -hmm. learn. How do we apply that in front of an audience? That isn't an easy thing to do. However, a strategy I use is to create what I call drop moments Mm -hmm. and Drop moments are the moments in a presentation where we feel it, we know that something is happening, and we create a moment out of it. For example, when I have a rough stutter on stage, I create a drop moment out of it. When it happens, I stand there, I smile, I look at everybody, and I say, he's back. (laughs) Give him a moment. Let him do his thing. In fact, can we all breathe through this one together? So by creating the moment, it becomes inclusive. Mm. I join whatever's going on with everybody else in the room, which then makes me feel more comfortable about it, which then makes everybody else feel more comfortable about it. And through that, we create the drop moment. That can be applied to any Mm. error, mistake, emotion that we feel. Another example is for TED Talks. I coached a molecular biologist for her TED talk and she delivered it in April at the convention center. She was speaker number two on the day. We both crafted a beautiful story about dragons in the ocean and they're linked to artificial intelligence. Four minutes into her talk, she had a mind blank and she froze in front of 2000 people. And I was backstage. I could see her through the door and she turns She looks at me, I look at her, and I gave her the most accessible advice to anybody who's speaking, breathe, Mm -hmm. take a breath and calm down. So she did that. And then the drop moment, which she created, was she told everyone, I've had a mind blank, I'm going through it. Yep, I've had a mind blank in the biggest public speaking event of my life, so bear with me. And what do you think everybody did? Braced with her. They all clapped. Mm -hmm. 2,000 people clapped Mm -hmm. for her. And it was beautiful. So yeah. that's another example of a drop yeah. moment where yeah. acknowledge it, own it, tell people. Yeah. Don't let the hamster spin in our heads on our own. Tell people, allow them to be part of whatever we're going through. And that is empowering. Absolutely. And I think it does so much to humanize you as well. Yes. You know, I think we put so much more pressure on ourselves, don't we, when we try to cover things up and everything has to be all perfect and polished. And it's just not reality. Whereas the two examples you've just given are brilliant because they're both just humanizing us as individuals where we do have like brain farts and blanks and 
we lose where we were. And I, as we're talking about this, I can think of so many examples now where I've seen that done, maybe consciously, maybe not consciously by that person. And it absolutely humanized them. And it brought, to your point, it brought people into their world, perhaps even more than what they were before. Something I find hilarious is Mm. how people react, how most people react to the word fuck. (laughs) Look what happened. I'm 12. I just giggle. (laughs) I'm 12. (laughs) How most people react to the word fuck. And I'll share an example of another drop moment. And I use this as a comedy stint in all my talks because it works. When I'm delivering a line and I mumble my words or I stutter or I forget, or there's somebody in the audience I see who's on their phone or distracted, I stop and and I say, fuck, am I boring? And because of that, people will laugh. And then I'll respond with, are you laughing because I said, fuck? It can't be that fucking funny. And people continuously laugh then. And dropping the F-bomb at events has turned into a taboo that even though we use it all the time, we use it in conversation, people find it hilarious when we say it on stage. And however, there has been times where I've said fuck and the whole room has gone quiet. (laughs) (laughs) So I did this. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> swallow me swallow me whole earth pulled into my shell and then I asked is that unacceptable should I say shit instead and they still went quiet and so then I said all right let's not try three I will not swear for the rest of this conference however because I'm OCD and I like the rule of three I'm going to say shit one last time and now let's move on shall we and I did and it was cringeworthy. However, I had to complete the trio before I moved on. And I learned that heavily tech-minded people are not in tune to mm. self-deprecation as others may be. Yes. Yeah. You have just touched on something as, and I feel like I could talk to you all day. So I, I'm only going to ask you another question or two. <laughs> but you've just touched on something that I am so curious about because I have observed that you do this quite often and so I'm making a bold assumption that this is a purposeful strategy and that is using the power of three is there something behind and the reason I want to I'm making the observation and now I'm sort of asking a question too one of the biggest questions I often get from people around their fear of speaking is that they're going to get a question from somebody that they don't know how to answer or they're going to get it wrong And one of the things I've observed you do is use this power of three, either when making statements or potentially even when answering questions. So can you talk us through what's behind that? The rule of three, it's an easy way for people to learn. You're familiar Mm. with the rule of three, right? And it Mm. goes back to millennia. Yeah. Applying the rule of three in conversations and presentations. It's a way for us to structure our responses It's a way for our audience to follow what that structure is and digest information in a rule of three chunk, which means it's easier to absorb for people. The reason I like to use it is because there's so much going on in our minds. For example, if somebody asks, can you tell us about yourself? Where should I start? Mm. I have my whole life to share. However, here's three things which I'd like to share. 
I'm a football fan, I'm a climate enthusiast, and I like sneakers. So I'll pick three things about me which mm. are different, which pique curiosity. It's easy for me to follow. It's easy for you to follow. It's easy for others to follow and understand our message. So I like the rule of three because mm. it gives me structure. And structure means we stay on track. When we stay on track, we don't word vomit. Yes. Yeah. I've seen the rule of three also used in, again, with an answer and question pace as a framework people hold on to around like past, present, future in -hmm. terms of answer. I'm sure you've heard that before as well, like answering questions. You know, previously we tried X, Y, and Z. Currently, this is what we're focusing on. Going forward though, we see the following things as probably being relevant. And interesting with all of these different strategies is because there's no shortage of advice or tools or strategies out there. But how do we how do we know which ones are going to work for us? How do we know which ones to start with? In my opinion, select three which are deeply comfortable and personal to you. Mm. Your opening question was one of your opening questions was, can you tell us about yourself? Well, things which are deeply close to me are I like football, I love sneakers, I'm a wildlife enthusiast. They're three things which I think about constantly and Mm -hmm. they form my identity. And then I added a fourth around the gym because it's something I share in my stories. I train Mm -hmm. constantly and it's a big part of my life. So out of those, at any point, I can pick three in my personal life. In my speaking career in the last five years, there's been so many cool achievements that I picked three and I picked three based on where the conversation is going Mm. to. So for example, on Wednesday, I was invited to present to the Entrepreneurs Organization. It's a global organization. You've heard of them. You're Mm. nodding. Mm. I was invited to present to them. And they wanted a 10-minute snapshot of, of my speaking career. So I started with an opening story. I then used the rule of three, and I shared three crowning achievements that I'm proud of. And one was TEDx Perth, two was my documentary, and three was how we've now built an artificial intelligence platform. So I used the Mm -hmm. rule of three to go from TED is a well-known brand, the movie. Well, there's not many people that can say they've had a movie about them. So there's something cool. And three, AI. Why? Because everyone's talking about AI. Mm -hmm. So why not talk about that now? So that's where I selected the three from. Very powerful. And like you said, can be used in many, many different formats, whether it's answering questions, structuring a presentation, et cetera, et cetera. Interviews, conversations, presentations, podcasts, anywhere. Everything. The rule of three is gold. Mm. I'm going to be more intentional about using it, I think. I know it, but I probably don't do it enough. Have you observed this on the videos I share or yeah. on today's podcast? Yeah, I've observed it on the videos that you share. You often will talk in threes and it's something I'm aware of, but I know I've noticed you do it really, really well, obviously, because oh, you're really you. skilled at your craft, Shil. Thank <laughs> <laughs> you. Hey. hey, last question from me, second last actually. If you could leave our audience with any piece of advice around managing the fear of getting up in front of people, whether it's 100, formal, informal, whatever it might be. What is the thing you'd like to leave them with? If there is advice I'd like to leave the listeners with around managing the fear and standing in front of an audience, is that the question? Mm -hmm. Start small. Mm -hmm. So 
start with one person, stand up in front of one person. That one person could be a sibling or a friend or a parent, and then go to two and then turn the two into four. And through exposure therapy, get more exposed to the process. And then four becomes six, six becomes eight. Step through the process. And what we realize is when we start with one, we can take that same conversation to four. When we have four, we can take the same conversation to six. Through exposure therapy, we build our confidence in doing that. However, for those who want a more extreme way of doing it is go straight to five or 10. And that five or 10 could be a group of our family and our friends. You may want to bribe them with beer or pizza <laughs> or wine or something else to allow you to use their time, to have their time and get them to hammer you, test you, mm. drill you, question you. Use that as a safe platform to know what it feels like to function under pressure and get them to test you in a way that makes you feel like shit because you'll understand that after it for a day, you will feel like shit. However, once you understand that that shit feeling goes and what you learn out of it, you can then apply to anything else you do. Mm. So there's exposure therapy or there's the cold turkey. Which one are you? Try it. That's great advice. And usually, you know, your family and your friends, especially if you ask them to, they will get great joy out of grilling and grilling. (laughs) And because we've spoken about the rule of three, there's one which I forgot. So this is something which is fantastic, fantastic to developing our public speaking skills. Go out on the streets, go into a cafe, go to somewhere where there's people, pull out our phones and in front of those people, record a video. Record a video in public around other people. I reckon there will be a number of people listening to that right now going, I wouldn't do that. Yeah, and that's why we should do it. (laughs) That's why we should do it because 95% of people will say, I'm not doing it. Mm. And to manage that, here's a hack which I use, and you may have seen the video on this. Whenever we share a video in public, we're afraid of what people think about us. Do we agree? Mm-hmm. We're conscious about what the reaction from people is going to be. Now, I noticed today you're wearing your headphones, Claire. Yes. Yep. I have those headphones, the old school ones where we still have the cables. Yeah. yeah. They're, I've always so, gone retro today. <laughs> I like retro. So I have the retro style like yours mm-hmm. and mine don't work. Mine don't even fit into my phone because I've got the new plug-in. The retros is an old plug. So I plug my headphones in, I turn the phone and I speak into my phone. So it looks as though I'm speaking to somebody on the phone, whereas I'm actually recording a video. And so by doing that, we break through the discomfort of what other people think. And then eventually we feel comfortable to take the headphones out and record a video. However, when we can do that consistently, we build resilience, which can be applied to speaking to an Mm. audience. Great advice. I think you are a wealth of knowledge and expertise and guidance. So I'm pretty confident that there will be a number of people who are going to want to connect with you or reach out to you following this episode. So what's your poison of choice? What is the best way of people to get in touch with you? 
my social media and in particular, my primary playground is my LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Please, if you'd like to follow me, you're welcome to follow me on my LinkedIn. You can find me under my name. Alternatively, my fun playground is my Instagram, which I'm learning more about and doing stories and hashtags and all of that. So I also have an Instagram account, which you may like to share when the podcast is out. I knocked over my mic. See, that's a drop moment. <laughs> a literal. <laughs> now it's, it's creeping up towards me. How weird is that? <laughs> I love it. I love it. A literal, a literal mic drop moment there. Yeah. So my LinkedIn and and my Instagram are a fabulous way to get in touch. Excellent. And we will absolutely drop links to both of those in the show notes and we will tag you. you. Thank you, Shilshangavi, for joining me today. I cannot wait to listen back to this all together and no doubt listen to hopefully some feedback that we get from the listeners who put some of your suggestions into practice as to how they go. So thank you for joining me. It's been a total pleasure having you on board today. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, that's it for another episode of the Eating Your Cake 2 podcast. It has been amazing to have you here and I am always so grateful for you taking the time to pop me in your ears as you go about your day or night. Remember to follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Eating Your Cake 2. And if we aren't connected on LinkedIn yet, reach out and say hi. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, then I would love if you would leave a review so that others can find the podcast and come and hang out with me here too. Until next episode, you've got this. You can do it. You are doing it. And remember to back yourself and what you have to offer. Hey there, thanks for hanging on and thank you again so much for listening to the podcast. I truly love having you with me, but I want to make sure that you know if you're ready to work together exactly how we can do it. The first way is through my game-changing Transform Your Career six-week accelerator program. This six-week online program is for busy professional women who are ready to regain control of their career and leadership once and for all. Go from feeling like just another employee to an in-demand asset in your company. Stop feeling lost, stuck, and unmotivated, and instead feel confident, worthy of earning more, and armed with the tools to go out and get what you want. The Transform Your Career Accelerator cuts the crap and gets right to the key levers that you need to be pulling to ensure you are seen, heard, and noticed at work. Add to this an epic group of like-minded women all coming together to share insights, learnings, and to build a new network along the way. If this sounds like something you need, then join the waitlist now. The link is in the show notes. The second way you can work with me is through my private one-on-one coaching program, where I only take a very limited number of clients each year by application. My six-month private programs are for you if you know you need tailored coaching and guidance now. You want a container of space and time just for you to work through your exclusive and unique goals. You don't want to wait for the waitlist in my other programs because you know you want access to my brain and my experience all to yourself. If this sounds like you, then book a free call in my diary today and let's chat. 
Lastly, if you want me in your organization to come and share my tried and tested knowledge with your team on how we can all collectively elevate our own leadership and career success, then jump on my website and download the services info pack or grab it from the link in the show notes. Thanks again for listening.